Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here freely in this place on this uh, beautiful Lord's Day morning to open the scriptures together. Our Father, may your spirit be our teacher. I pray for your enablement to handle the word rightly. Father, soften our hearts even in this moment that we might hear from you through the preaching of your word. But we ask it in the name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. They are familiar sights in most neighborhoods of our community. Whether it be a pair of young men dressed in white shirts and ties and riding around on bicycles. Or perhaps a middle-aged man in a suit, often accompanied by a couple of women and a child. You know what I'm talking about. They go door to door. In our particular neighborhood, they often choose Saturday morning as a time when people will be home. So they might come and seek to trap some unsuspecting soul and to draw them in to their spiritual trap. Yes, I am talking about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'm not talking about your nice neighbor, the person who lives one or two or three doors down from you who claims to be Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. I'm not talking about them. They are nice neighbors. They are people that we should get to try to, try to get to know and people with whom we should seek to open the scriptures and to lead them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about them. What I am talking about, however, are these zealous evangelists who are actively seeking to spread their spiritual toxins throughout this community. They represent themselves as true followers of Christ, that is, Christians, but they deny the truth about Christ. And according to the Apostle John, they are to be neither given a platform to teach their doctrines of demons, nor are they to be wished well in their endeavors. Do not even give them the time of day. Now, I know that that sounds harsh. I know that that sounds unloving. To our modern ear, it seems downright rude and even uncharitable. But I would suggest to you, beloved, it's because we often underestimate what is at stake here. Just exactly what is at stake. There are not many roads to God. There are not many paths to the top of the mountain. There is one way to the Father. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. If Jesus is right, that excludes all other possibilities. All other possibilities. 
Therefore, those who reject Christ do not know God. Regardless of what they claim, they do not know God, and both they and their followers are headed to hell. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if you found yourself in the same room as a supposed Christian teacher who denied that God created the world? Furthermore, this supposed Christian teacher taught that Jesus was not born of a virgin and that the Christ Spirit descended upon the human Jesus at his baptism and then left him at his crucifixion. This was the teaching of one by the name of Serinthus. Well, I'll tell you what the Apostle John did. The Apostle John was entering into a bathhouse in Ephesus one day, And upon entering into the bathhouse, he found out that the false teacher Serinthus was inside, and John rushed out, probably naked, screaming at the top of his lungs, let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. This is the Apostle John, right? The Apostle of love. The apostle of love. Because John understood what was at stake. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We return again here to Jesus' final confrontation, as it were, with the spiritual leaders of his nation. This is Tuesday afternoon of the Passion Week. Jesus has just, on Monday and Tuesday morning, gone through a series of confrontations with them. And really now he is turning from them to pronounce judgment upon these false shepherds of Israel. The time to debate is over. And by calling out them and pronouncing these woes upon them, he is pronouncing these woes upon all who believe and follow them in their doctrines of demons. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13 and running through verse 33, there is an there are eight woes, eight judgments, an eight-part indictment of the false teachers of Israel. And they help us in the process of examining these to understand the wickedness of man-made religion because that's exactly what it was. Specifically, Jesus pronounces woe upon them in verse 13 for closing the kingdom. Closing the kingdom. In verse 14, for preying on the vulnerable. In verse 15, which we have before us this morning, for indoctrinating in error. Next week, in verses 16 through 22, for encouraging prevarication. 
23 to 24, for majoring on the minors, 25 through 26, for practicing externalism, for 27 and 28, for ignoring inner purity, and then finally in 29 through 33, for persecuting God's spokesman. Now, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus has condemned what the false shepherds do, closing the kingdom, praying on the vulnerable. Now he condemns, he begins to condemn how they do it, beginning in verse 15. Specifically, this morning, we'll look, as I say, at verse 15. The how is by indoctrinating in error. And as we look at it together, we are going to be reminded of the deadly effect of false teaching. The deadly effect of false teaching. And the reality that it is only countered by massive and regular doses of the life-giving power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, verse 15. Jesus represents... The false shepherds as first aggressive in their pursuit. They are aggressive in their pursuit. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. You travel around on sea and land. That is a proverbial expression. It is not a literal expression. It is not that they literally go all over the world, both sea and land. It is a proverbial expression. And what it means is to do anything with great effort or zeal. It is to expend one's energies in a certain pursuit. We might use an expression, knock yourself out. They knock themselves out to make one proselyte. That's the idea. Now, the word proselyte means one who has arrived, literally, one who has arrived. It commonly refers to a person who was previously an outsider who has now been converted to a particular religion, one who was outside the religion who has now been converted into that religion, to become a follower of that religion, a proselyte. In the New Testament, the word always refers to Gentiles who have been converts to Judaism. They have become converts. They were once outside, and now they have become converts to Judaism. They are proselytes. Now, historically, they tell us there were two types of proselytes in Judaism. One called a proselyte of the gate, and another called a proselyte of righteousness. A proselyte of the gate and a proselyte of righteousness. Now, the proselyte of the gate referred to a Gentile who attended synagogue, the services. They they participated in the worship of the one true God, but they did not submit themselves to the ritualistic aspects of Judaism. So they would worship the God. They believed in the God, Yehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they did not submit to the ritualistic aspects of Judaism. So, for example, Cornelius in the book of Acts. Cornelius in the book of Acts would be a proselyte of the gate. They are referred to in the book of Acts as devout. 
Acts chapter 10, verse 2, he is called devout. It means he is a follower of Israel. He's a proselyte to the God of Israel. They're also called God-fearers. You'll see that expression used. They are God-fearers. These are proselytes of the gate. The other kind, and there were much fewer of, of them, they were called a proselyte of righteousness. And they had actually become as close to becoming Jewish as one could be. That is, they had submitted themselves to circumcision if they were male. And they entered into all the various ritualistic uh, aspects of the nation of Israel. So they became as close to becoming Jewish as they possibly could. It is this second group that, that the scribes and the Pharisees prize as disciples. It is this second group that they travel over land and sea, that is to exert their maximum effort to try to seek to convert to their understanding of Judaism. To make themselves, uh, or to make these proselytes into disciples of themselves. To, to bring them into their legalistic understanding of what it means to be made right with God. They exerted maximum effort with these people. Now, beloved, uh, Jesus says in uh, Luke chapter 6 and in verse 40, and you should mark this down and you should memorize this. Because it is a statement that has incredibly profound implications. And it is simply this. Jesus said, a pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. As I say, the implications of that are significant in our own lives and in the lives of our children. Now, there's a terrifying reality to the truth of that statement. The terrifying reality is simply this. It is, it is illustrated here in verse 15 of, of Matthew 23. And that is that these, these proselytes of righteousness, these, these disciples of the scribes and the Pharisees, become, Jesus says, twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That is, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are aggressive in their pursuit of them, and they are corrupting in their discipleship of them. They're corrupting in their discipleship of them. Now think about it. Originally, these Gentiles had known nothing of Scripture, of the God of Israel, so when they are caught in the clutches of these false shepherds, they assume they are entering into the light. These are teachers. They assume that they are, they are entering into the light and they are drawing close to the one true God. But in the reality, they've been deceived and they're being led even deeper into darkness. It would have been better for them to not enter it at all. Beyond that, it is a well-known phenomena that the zeal of a new disciple often exceeds that of their teacher. Many of us have experienced that ourselves, even if you can remember back when you first became a follower of Christ, how zealous you were. Often the new convert is quite zealous. So the scribes and the Pharisees, by, by training these new converts in the way of legalism, they have doubly damned them. Doubly damned them. 
The expression here, twice as much a son of hell, this expression, a son of hell, is, a, is again just an expression. And, it, and what it means is basically one who is fitted for or destined to hell. One who is suited for hell. One who is destined for hell. You get a sense of the awfulness of this. These ones from outside think they are drawing close to God, but in the reality, they are moving further away from God. Further away. Now, beloved, this is not just a historical problem. This is not just something, you know, it was in those days with those people. The danger of false teachers and false shepherds doing massive damage for those who have some inkling towards the God of the Bible is with us today. There is a war going on. You know that, right? We are at war. It is not a war that is fought with bombs and bullets. It is a war for the hearts and the minds of people. The hearts and the minds of people. It is an invisible war. It is a spiritual war. And it is going on. It is occurring right now in this room. Parents, it is going on in the hearts and the minds of your children. There is a tug of war going on. The Apostle Paul addresses the reality of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, where he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The idea is strongholds, prisons. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That is the stronghold. That is the stronghold. It is the speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. It is all the man-made religious systems of this fallen world. This creation and rebellion against its creator. And Paul says we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There is a war going on for the hearts and minds of people. My concern lies in the reality that there are some who are not prepared to fight. Not prepared to fight. Don't understand there's a war going on. Not ready, not trained, not drilled. Sort of moving through life. Unaware. Beloved, the church in our day has such privilege, such opportunity, and such weakness. Such weakness. The church is doctrinally weak. Doctrinally weak. People pride themselves on how little doctrine they could know. The church is doctrinally weak. The church is spiritually anemic. Spiritually anemic and and thus resorts to all kinds of marketing schemes in order to gain a hearing. 
There's no power in that. There's no transformation in that. There's no smashing of strongholds in that. The church in America is in danger of collapse. It is in danger of collapse. There is an aggressive onslaught of secularization going on in this country. We are not at peace. We're at war. Now, whether we realize we're at war with them, they know they're at war with us. And it's aggressive. Paganism is on the rise. It has been brought into the Western world through the Asian influx and Buddhism and Sikhism have brought with it all kinds of pagan notions. We are in danger of religious ecumenicalism. Why don't we just all get together? Stop talking about what divides us. Let's just talk about what unites us. We're all Christian. Great big table. Beloved, the salt is in danger of losing its saltiness. The assault comes in every direction. Every direction. I just spent 10 days in New England. New England, the place where this country started, the foundation of congregational Calvinism, confessing orthodoxy, men and women who made tremendous sacrifice to come and establish here in the new world the opportunity to freely worship the God of the Bible. New England, the place where where virtually everyone was a follower of Christ initially. It is burned over. It is abandoned. The earth is scorched. There's very little green growth. Theological liberals have torn their way through the vineyard. Those who seek to remove the offensive portions of Christianity so that we might appeal to the modern mind, right? Paul says of them in 2 Timothy 3, 5, they retain a form of godliness but have denied its power. I'm talking about people who deny all or part of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. People who say there there is no creator God, no six-day creation. It all came about as a result of some kind of chance. People who deny the historicity of Adam and Eve. They deny Noah. They deny the flood. Beloved, if you jettison the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you might as well throw the whole Bible away. For it is there we learn about our sovereign God, creator God, who spoke this creation into existence and who, as the lawgiver, establishes a universal morality to which he holds his creation in account. 
You abandon the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you can forget God's sovereignty, you can forget God's law, you can forget sin, you can forget judgment, you can forget the second Adam if the first was not real. And without the second Adam, there is no deliverance from sin. And ultimately, there is no heaven, no resurrection, no life everlasting. It is not a small matter. We have the liberals. We have the leftists. Enemies of the gospel. Secularists who are committed to driving all form of Christian expression and belief from the public realm. It is not you believe what you want, we'll believe what we want, let's just get along. It is a war. And there is no negotiated truce. They want to drive all Christianity, all belief in the God of the Bible from the the public realm. And they have an iron grip on the academic institutions of this nation. You send your children off to college, they need to be ready. They will be assaulted from the moment they step onto the campus of virtually every college and university in this nation. They will be assaulted. Their faith will be mocked. The Bible will be undermined. The vanguard of this movement is in the realm of human sexuality. It is to deny that which God created, male and female. God establishes that there are two genders, male and female. And at the moment of conception, the, that gender, that manness or womanness is established, and it cannot ever be changed, ever be changed. Despite what one poor, confused, lost soul might try. Men are not trapped in women's bodies. Women are not trapped in men's bodies. That is a direct assault on the Creator God. Liberals, leftists, liars. We are assaulted by liars. Those who come to your door, those who come into your home through the television or the internet, spouting age-old heresies that directly attack the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no new heresy. They are old heresies. Oh, they might have a new coat of paint, but they are old heresies. Joel Olstein, pastor of one of the largest and most popular churches in America, a heretic, a purveyor of the prosperity gospel, a liar and deceiver and misrepresenter of Christ, beamed into people's homes on a regular basis. Liberals, leftists, liars, Legalists, 
the legalists. Those who would seek to improve our standing before God based on rules and regulations that they make up. Do this. Don't do that. That's how one is acceptable before God. Nonsense. Blasphemy. Heresy. Woe to you, legalists. Hypocrites. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians, in chapter 2, speaking to the church at Colossae, who is being inundated by these legalists. He says in chapter 2 and in verse 20, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which are all referred to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul calls it another gospel. And he pronounces anathema on it. Legalists would seek to enslave and draw away those who would follow Christ. Finally, libertines. Libertines. Those who advocate an unrestrained indulgence of the flesh under the notion that, listen, Jesus paid for all of our sin. We're justified. Just believe on Jesus and then live how you like. Paul addresses it in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? May we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be, Paul says. May it never be. Perish the thought. Those false shepherds who would use the doctrine of justification to cover their sin. Libertines. Beloved, are you prepared? Are you prepared to discern their errors? To stand up for the truth against these who attack the very foundations of reality? Parents, are your children ready? Have you taught your children? Have you made disciples of your children? Jesus says in Matthew 28 and verse 20, to go into the world and make disciples, it begins in our own homes. Make disciples. And Jesus tells us how it is done. It is twofold. It is baptizing them. That is, it is leading them to a place where they make a public confession of faith, a proclamation of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then teaching them to observe all that I command you. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, Until I come, Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Paul, what do I do to pastor a church? This is what you do. You read the Scripture publicly. You exhort the people to obey the Scriptures, and you teach the people what the Scriptures mean. 
He says again in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, These things, Timothy, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, pass on what you have been taught. And again, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2, Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why, Paul? For the time will come. Will nay, will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Some years ago, our friend Colin Marshall was here. He said many, many helpful things, but he said one thing that has stuck with me ever since. And it's simply this. The first generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. And the third generation loses the gospel. It is a precious entrustment that needs to be carefully, skillfully, and diligently passed from generation to generation. Beloved, what is our defense against these false shepherds, these false teachers that prowl about seeking whom they may destroy? It is to be indoctrinated in the truth of the gospel. It is to indoctrinate both ourselves and our children in the gospel. I loved that song we sang this morning. I got to get a hang of the tune? Fine. But I loved that confessional song. Because we need to be reminded of these things. They need to become second nature to us. We're going to take communion together here at the end of the service. So in preparation for that, let me review the gospel with you. Let me remind you of what it is we believe, what is true in this world, and what would draw us to this table together. Two ways to live. God is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world. He made us rulers of the world under him. John writes in Revelation chapter 4 and in verse 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. But is that the way it is now? Is that the way it is? Is God receiving the glory and the honor that is due him? No, he is not. Why? Because we all reject the ruler God by trying to run life our own way without him. But we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world.
Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verses 10 and following, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. In other words, humanity is in rebellion against their creator. What will God do about this rebellion? God will not allow us to rebel forever. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Man is destined to die once and then to face judgment. And is destined to die once and then to face judgment. Well, God's justice sounds hard. But because of his love. Because of his love, God sent his son into the world. The man, Jesus Christ. God sent his son into the world. The man, Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived under God's rule. Always. Yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. First Peter chapter 3. And verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But beloved, that's not all. It didn't end there. God raised Jesus to life again as the ruler of the world. Jesus has conquered death. Now gives new life and will return to judge. Again, Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. In his great mercy, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, the glorious good news. Oh, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Two ways to live. Two ways to live. My way, reject the ruler God. Try to run life my own way without him. What will be the result of this? Condemned by God. Facing death and judgment. This is where the majority of the world lies. But there is God's new way. God's new way. Submit to Jesus as our ruler, rely on Jesus' death and resurrection. Result? Forgiven by God. Given eternal life. Listen again to the Apostle John. In John chapter 3 and verse 36. Whoever 
Whoever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. The question one must ask themselves. Which way are you living? Which way are you living? Beloved, salvation in the New Testament is always presented as a present reality. We are believing present participle on the Lord Jesus Christ. Which way are you living? And which way do you want to live? Which way do you want to live? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Right now, right here, in this moment, you can call out to Jesus. You, right from where you are, can call out to Jesus. Acknowledge the reality that you have been living life your own way, that you are in rebellion against your creator that you are facing death and judgment and you deserve it and you can call out to Jesus to save you call out to Jesus to save you while I pray may God grant you mercy if you find yourself in that position may God grant you mercy right now to call out to Christ Our Father, there is no life outside of the Son. He alone is the only way to be reconciled back to you. In your great love, you sent him into this world to accomplish what we could never accomplish, to bear the penalty for our sin to drink of the cup of the wrath of God to its final drop, to consume it on our behalf. To offer his life as a ransom for ours. If we will but turn from our sin and call out to him. O Lord, may you work in our hearts to strengthen us to believe. Father, those of us who do believe, O oh Lord, unbelief remains an ever-constant threat. It lurks, it prowls. Our Father, help us to believe. And Lord, for that one here this morning in this place who has yet to call out to Christ, 
who is seeking some other way, some other path. May you in this moment of time open their eyes to the reality of their condition and draw them to faith in Christ. May they call out to the Savior, Oh, Jesus, may you save me from my sins. I believe that you came and you lived and you died on my behalf and that you rose from the dead, conquering death and sin for all time for those who will receive you as their Lord and Savior. Father, may you enable them to believe. I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.